0: You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry.
1: Welcome everyone to Testimonies with Terry. I'm your host, Terry Skaggs. Go ahead and give me a follow on social media at TWTerryPod. So last episode, I got to interview one of the authors of The Uncovery, George A. Wood. And this week, I'm interviewing the other author. She's a fountain of wisdom. And you're going to hear her story of how struggling with identity at an early age led her to living a double life and ultimately leading to a suicide attempt. You'll hear how those experiences formed a mentality in her of picking herself up by her bootstraps and overachieving, but how there was still an emptiness within her. Having her double life exposed during a powerful moment with her husband, you'll be amazed at the grace and restoration God has shown in her marriage. Now, wanting others to experience full freedom and recovery in Jesus Christ as well, she informs us of how the church can learn from its past mistakes to better help people experience that. She's a woman of many talents and gifts. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Britt Eaton's testimony. Hey guys, we got speaker, wordsmith, content strategist, and co-author of The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma, Britt Eaton on the show today. Britt, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Terry. I'm so excited to be here today.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I had the privilege of interviewing George, your co author, uh, a couple weeks ago, and really connected with him. And I knew that I couldn't just have George on the show, I wanted you on the show as well. And so, um, reached out to Trevor, Trevor Tyson, and uh, he put this all together. So shout out to Trevor. Thanks to Trevor. And I'm excited to to just chat with you and to really get to know you, Britt. Um, yeah. Obviously, this is the first time that we're meeting and I've read the uncovery, uh, I've checked out your website and looked through Instagram a little bit. So uh, this is really just getting to know you and, and your story. So I'm excited to dig into it.
0: Oh man, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited you and George have connected. George and Terry are some of my favorite people in the whole wide world. So man, this is just the start of a crazy movement with this Uncovery book. Amen. so much going on, but it is a beautiful time to just jump in and start having some of these like crazy conversations. And I want to thank you for being willing to go deeper and willing to just, yeah, step in vulnerably and have, have some of the conversations that we, the church have really needed to have for a long time. So I'm here and I'm an open book. Ask me anything.
1: All right. All right. Well, let's, let's dig into it here, Britt. Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up?
0: Yeah, so I grew up actually in Mansfield, Ohio, a very small town about an hour north of Columbus. Um, it's about only about forty-five minutes away from where I live now in Mount Vernon, Ohio, and uh, grew up in a really great Christian home. My dad was, or my mom was a Nazarene pastor's kid, and my dad was a serial choir director. So we had a very diverse uh, religious upbringing, if you will. All Christian, but many different denominations, all kinds of persuasions, um, and in that time. You know, I, I found Jesus when I was a little girl. And I'll, I say that I found him in that. I did what I think all the adults wanted me to do. One of my earliest memories, I remember being in a, in a church situation where my parents um, had sent me to Sunday school, and then the Sunday school teacher marched all the little kids up front to the front of the of the sanctuary, had one of those old school microphones that actually had a wire on it, and they just passed it down to all of the little kids. And we repeated after the Sunday school teacher praying the sinner's prayer. Because this is what we did. You just check the boxes. You show up. You show up to church then for the rest of your life, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, sometimes in the middle of the day for luncheons, every Wednesday night, sometimes Thursday nights and Friday nights. So I was a serial church girl. I grew up in the church to the extreme. But I'm going to be honest with you, Terry. I don't think I really knew who God was. I knew a lot about Him. But as a little girl and even into my, my teen years, I don't know that I knew Him at all. I very much saw Him as a distant deity. And most of the time I figured <laughs> He was probably mad at me. <laughs> so I really kept Him at arm's length. And yet being um, a child of parents who were leaders in the church and leaders in the community, I just got really good at trying to look good on the surface. I got really good at playing the part. I knew all the right words to say. But that upbringing yeah, here in Central Ohio, it was one that was forged in compartmentalization and lies and um, just some really, really deep struggles with my identity, with my mental health, and wow, just with every aspect of life. So Central Ohio, a small town girl, but man, (laughs) I tell you what, sometimes the things through which... uh, we struggle. They they really don't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're in the inner city in a major metro, or if you are in a little podunk cow town. Uh, there's no discrimination. Anybody can struggle, which is one of the reasons you know in my life and even in my career, I've I've overcome so much, and now I'm stepping into this foray with George into the recovery space. Uh, really trying to flip the idea of recovery on its head to help people start to see it differently. But it all started really, really young in a little town in Central Ohio.
1: <laughs> right, right. I think of the pressure that was put on you or that you put on yourself mm-hmm. to to kind of fit the mold, right? It sounds like you knew how to do church, but that mm-hmm. relationship part with Jesus was lacking. And, and you mentioned that there was some struggles with identity and, and mm-hmm. mental health. Let's maybe start with the identity piece. Yeah. So who did little Brit think she was?
0: Oh gosh. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even know that I had language for it at the time. When we talk about identity now, like, I mean, people have been teaching on a hardcore for like the last 10 years and we're still teaching on it hardcore because most people still don't get it. And at the time it really, I, I would hear some phrases and language, even as a young woman, things like, you know, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ but people just said, you get that by praying the sinner's prayer, and then you have it because Jesus just lives in your heart. And you're like, okay, well, great. But I don't hear him when I pray. He doesn't answer me, or I don't know how to chase after him. Or even when you read scripture, I had a really hard time identifying and saying, this is not only historically accurate, contextually accurate, but what does this mean to me? Like, what What do any of these stories mean to me? And although I don't think I ever doubted the idea that God loved me, because it was so clear in Scripture that God did. I don't. I don't think I thought He cared about me. I thought He loved me, as in like a "oh, I love that girl" kind of thing. So, little Brit really looked for love in all of the wrong places. Starting as a little kid, I really tried to uh, win win the love and the affection of my parents, of my elders, of friends by just people-pleasing really, really early on. I learned that when I do the things that people ask of me, or if I can anticipate people's expectations of me and deliver, that I make them happy and they like me more. So I, I, that, you know, cycle perpetuated and continued. And it wasn't until I was much, much older that I was even introduced to the idea that sometimes what people want of me and think they need of me isn't actually good for me. <laughs> and so, yeah, little Brit was just a people pleaser, I would say, almost from day one. And I very much loved people and I wanted to be a good little Christian girl. But um, gosh, I think I was about 12 years old by the time I began to believe believe I had messed up so bad that God would never forgive me that I was damaged goods that um, you know there was no hope for my real redemption I might be forgiven but my sins were not forgotten is what I grew up believing and in, you know part of that you know different denominations and different doctrines I, I had a touch of it all but somehow as a young woman I really believed God was so legalistic that if I was driving down the road, and late at night, and you know, the Mack truck on the other side of the road starts going left of center, is coming straight at me. Like if I said a four letter word and got hit head on and died, I believed I was going straight to hell. I really believed that. That if I had even one tiny unconfessed sin, that I was done for. And so my life got to a point where that anxiety and that stress of trying to be perfect, trying to please the people around me, and inevitably failing some because we're human, right? We're going to fail sometimes. Um, I got to the point where I kind of threw in the towel and I didn't give up on my faith. I'd never said I don't believe in God, but I kind of said, you know what? What's the point? I'm never going to be able to walk this out perfectly. I'm never going to be able to be good enough. I'm never going to be in a position where I deserve love from God or I pursue some sort of holiness. So why try? And that, that belief deep under the surface was something that I felt and it it manifested in me compartmentalizing my life in that I actively sought out just every kind of, I don't know, bad behavior like I, I sought out the bad kids. I wanted to party, I, I experimented with drugs, I got promiscuous at a young age. and yet, I'd still show up on Sunday mornings, dressed to the nines, looking the part for mom and dad. So I got to the point where I had all these different people groups, all these different friend groups, but like I never mixed them. Cause if my church people ever saw me with my party people, that wouldn't be okay. And if my party people ever saw me with my church people, I don't know what they would think. So <laughs> my life became very compartmentalized and very lonely. And gosh, it continued well into adulthood did i have this compartmentalization and honestly Terry for my whole life some of the biggest struggles that i faced were trying to keep my lies straight trying to remember what i had said in what situation and then really learning the art of manipulation like they say hurt people hurt people and Wow! Did I hurt people? Like the way that I would manipulate people, gaslight people into thinking they were nuts if I got into trouble, convincing my parents it was their responsibility to bail me out if I ever got into trouble, and that I, their perfect little girl, could never do anything. Wow! I mean, the kinds of things that that I fell into. I wouldn't call it like I, I didn't fall into some of the same um, the same traps that some people do. I was never formally like addicted to drugs or alcohol, I experimented quite a bit, but my struggles with my mental health came from that, that place of lacking in my identity. I had no idea who I was because I know I had no idea who God really was. How could I ever know who I was in him? So this weird compartmentalized life stirred up all this anxiety and it, it manifested in my life uh, with struggles with self-harm. And so there was a lot of cutting that happened in my teen years. I, uh, at 15 years old, I was hospitalized for attempted suicide, which was the first, most dramatic, and public way that my family had to deal with me, like, and figure out what to do with me. Because honestly, my parents really didn't have any idea. And then when this happened, when it all became so public so fast, I realized maybe for the first time ever, all of the shame that comes with struggling. Like if you are a Christian and you struggle, people automatically assume it's a faith issue. They automatically assume. And honestly, that was never really the issue with me. I I had a faith in God, I had a belief. But the shame and the stigma that surrounded My struggles not only impacted and made me kind of cast out as the other, it harmed my parents and they were suddenly treated as, you know, people who weren't worthy of elder positions because their child had gone astray and it was just created all of this, this. This, this deep, deep heart wounds early on. So, you know, the response to all of that, I would love to tell you like, I had some dramatic encounter with, with God when I was 15 and I was delivered and I never struggled again. But even though I did have people love me well, I responded to all of the shame and embarrassment that I knew I had brought on my family by really learning to bootstrap myself hard. Like I said, I can fix myself. I can achieve. I can move forward, move ahead, and succeed despite the odds. And so I'm kind of made up my life's mission to overdo everything. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) Yeah. Like yeah. Like case in point, after high school, like what is what is any normal little central Ohio? Christian girl who probably I probably weighed 115 pounds soaking wet at the time. I joined the military. I joined the Marine Corps, okay. just like out of nowhere. No military background in my family. Just to be like, what's the hardest thing I think I could do right now? And I just did it. My my whole yeah. family was shocked. Like what? And so I I took that. Bootstrapping, perfectionistic, still very much struggling with my mental health self, and I—I carry that into every aspect of my life. I carried it through my college education years. I carried it into my marriage. I carried it into my career, which started out in marketing communications. Um, man, I just. I went for it, like in a really big way, and in in very many ways, I was an extremely high achiever. I would show up as a natural leader. I had my master's degree by the time I was twenty seven. Um, I was teaching at the college level by twenty eight. It, it it just many many ways. I from an earthly perspective, again on the outside, wow, I sure looked the part. But that anxiety and those pieces from my childhood there were still deep, deep wounds that never really healed. But I had already decided I've stitched them up. I've dealt with them. I've covered them over with makeup so nobody can tell that the wounds are there anymore. But I still felt the pain and the anxiety and the the uh, just the general sense of struggle with all of it. And so I... I kind of just got used to it. I felt like that was life. <laughs> I felt like that. And around me, everybody else kind of seemed to be struggling in the same sorts of ways. So a lot of these pieces, some of the stuff I never dealt with when I was younger, some of those secret sins that I was hiding, much of it um, did not translate or communicate into my adult relationships. Just for example, my husband knew I was kind of an angsty teen. And to be honest, like I'm 41 now, Growing up in the '90s, it it seems like everybody was an angsty teen at the at the time. (laughs) I was just like, "Oh yeah, I went through a period, you know." I think I bought a couple packs of cigarettes, and I don't know. I I just had a thing, and so my uncle always knew about that, but he didn't know about me being hospitalized for attempted suicide. He didn't know about my former and very current struggle with bulimia. We were married for almost 10 years before I confessed it to him. It was amazing. So it's amazing how close you can be in relationship and proximity with people, with your family members, your coworkers, your best friends, and they can still not know you and have depth of relationship and community at all. And so that, that unhealthy compartmentalization, I even said to myself, okay, in every relationship that I have, I can only go in so far. So this created this piece in me as, you know, a, a close to 30 something woman, the imposter syndrome was really real. I was very talented. I could do a lot of things and I excelled in a lot of areas, but my greatest fear was being exposed as a fraud. My greatest fear was that the people that I loved and care about were going to find out that I was a total fake, that I had no idea what I was doing, that I was not as put together as I looked like on the surface. And let me tell you, it all came crashing down and it was yeah, not pretty
1: and- Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, that all started in your childhood, right? Just growing up in Mm -hmm. the church, your parents being influential and leaders. And again, that pressure to, you got to act the part, you got to look the part. And, Mm -hmm. and you can only do that for so long until the real you comes out until that pressure comes weighing down on you. Right. You know, the the problem with being a people pleaser is that when things are going well, when you're making the people around you happy, then you're happy.
0: But when mm-hmm. the people around you
1: aren't happy, you're not happy either, and you take that oh, as yeah. as like a failure. That what did I do wrong? What what this this should be working? What what's what's happening? And so you had mentioned twelve years old was kind of that age where you kind of started to realize that man, this isn't this isn't jiving here. Like I this isn't working. And then yeah. uh, h- how old were you when you had the suicide attempt, Britt? I was fifteen years old. So twelve,
0: old. thirteen, fourteen, fifteen were. I would say my deepest years of struggle, just those really formative years where you're not a child anymore, but you're kind of not a teenager either. It's this weird nebulous phase where you're trying to just figure out who you are. And nobody seemed to know. (laughs) I went everywhere in search of answers. I, I went everywhere other than where I now know I really needed to be heading to get those answers. And the father, I can look back on my life now and I've been through so much therapy and so much inner healing work and things like that. But I can look back on those years, those early preteen years, and I can have so much compassion for my former self. I can see God's hand in my life, even in those desperate moments. I can look back and, and at times literally see him in the room. Where was he? What was he doing? And I I know that I believe God is sovereign, but I also believe he is a gentleman and he let me make a lot of choices that ended up shaping me into the woman who I am today. So looking back on that season, it was just, yeah, I I think the thing that's hard about it and the thing that's difficult to talk about and the thing, like I said, I'm an open book, so we're going to go there. But a lot of the identity issues that I developed probably from ages 12 to 15, they came out of discussions at the church. (laughs) So <laughs> and tell a us lot more it, about I, that. Yeah. So I grew up in... The nineties was huge in especially the contemporary Christian church, there was this thing called the Purity Movement. And it's still kind of a thing, it's still kinda of out there, and I'm not anti-purity. Please don't mishear me, just calm down. But <laughs> <laughs> I was part of the early years of the purity movement, which were incredibly heavy-handed, incredibly legalistic, and in some ways now looking back and back in retrospect, many counselors, therapists, and pastors have said that some of the teachings and the you know behavior modification strategies were very abusive. And so my particular experiences with those, I don't want to like down the whole purity movement. I'm definitely for purity. Sure. Like we should focus on this. Yes. But I can distinctly remember in my middle school youth group having the the talk, the purity talk, where they separate the, all the boys in one room, all the girls in the other room. The, the pastor and the youth pastor go in the one room, and the wives of the pastors come in the other room. And I think there was another helper or some other semi adult person they're they're helping maybe an intern, and I can remember them talking to you about the idea of marriage, and I remember them holding up this beautiful rose in front of this group of girls and beginning to strategically and methodically pick roses or rose petals off the rose, saying every time you kiss a boy this is what happens. Every time you let a boy hold your hand, this is what happens. And then they would go deeper and say, okay, every time you let a boy feel up your shirt, I'm going pull off three rose petals. And they finally got to the end where they said, there's nothing left but a long stem and a little, what do you call that? The stamen and the flower. And they hold yeah. it out and they're like, is this what you want to offer your future husband? And all wow. I could think to myself at 12 was, oh no, I'm already damaged. Like I've already kissed a boy. I've already held hands with a boy. Like I, oops. And now it's too late. And they're like, then they have this altar call where they shame you forward. And they're like, if you've done anything that we said about on any of these pedals, come forward and receive prayer. And of course, all of us are running down there freaking out. Like, oh my gosh, what have I done? But you, I left there feeling such shame About my own experience. And now, growing up, my husband grew up in similar cultures, and the stories they told the boys weren't a whole lot better. Just, I mean, you know, without getting graphic and all of that, it just, some of those junior high school youth group meetings were some of the most damaging things I experienced in my life. And I hate that for the church. And I will say, you know, there's a reason a generation or two later, we're now all going through this weird deconstruction thing. A lot of people are like, I'm not sure I'm seeing value in institutional church and in institutional religion. They're not even giving up on their faith, they're giving up on Jesus, but they're looking at it and saying, something about this isn't right. Something yeah. about this, if it doesn't look like Jesus and smell like Jesus and act like Jesus, it's 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 not right. And so, but at the same time. Flash forward to now, I don't see the church as the other. I don't see the church as an institution. I see the church as the bride of Christ. I can look Mm -hmm. back with grace and with empathy, even for those leaders who were just doing, I, I believe they think they were doing what they thought was right. They were afraid. They were trying to teach us and they were very heavy handed in the way that they taught. But there has to be a better way. Like, can you imagine if anyone had talked to me? about the intrinsic and unique values that that value that I carried as a 12-year-old daughter of the king of heaven. Nobody ever said that language to me until I was in my 30s. If they had ever talked to me about what covenant marriage really was and not shame me out of like having sex before I got there, but talked to me about what it even is in the first place. Yeah. That would have been amazing and it might have been a completely different, completely transformative, completely grace-laced conversation. That even if I had done a little more than I thought I should have, I there was grace for it. There was always a way forward with the father. Because there's he never tires of lavishing love and grace on us. And I didn't get that message until it was gosh, way too late. Just I got it way too late. Yeah. So just in those early years, thinking I was damaged goods, thinking I had to look perfect on the surface, pushed me into compartmentalizing and doing whatever I wanted in secret. I honestly got to the point, Terry, where I thought that I could hide from God, like as if He couldn't see me when I was with this group of friends or that group of friends. I, I honestly felt like he was completely removed from me, almost like I was living a double life, like a double personality, but not, not like a schizophrenic double personality, but it, it just yep. became something so separate to me. And that was where, you know, when, when the anxiety took over and the self-harm began, I don't think you, anyone ever enters into harming themselves with, well, I mean, maybe some people do, but I, I did not enter into self-harm with an intent. To take my life, I didn't. Did, that was never my intent. Um, but it gets to a point where the more you tolerate thoughts that you know are not of God, when you tolerate these lies that are either from the enemy or sometimes from yourself, can be just as bad. When you know, we know there's scripture that talks about taking thoughts captive, and we might even learn that or become cognizant and aware of our thoughts, but we very rarely make them obedient to Christ. Instead, we'll kind of lock them up in a little cage in the back of our mind, and we'll talk to them, and we'll watch them and see what they do, and let them speak to us, and they become pets instead of us actually doing with it what we're supposed to and say, that is a lie from the pit of hell. I'm going to leave it at the feet of Jesus and Jesus, you take it, you deal with that because that's not on me. So yeah, just, just too little too late, but you know, the redemption story of my life, I I really just firmly believe that people go through what they go through so they can help other people go through what they went through. And that has been, Evidenced in my life that has been even in the transformation that I didn't experience until adulthood, until I was in my 30s, was when Holy Spirit really got a hold of me yeah. <laughs> and God really started to break in and expose these secrets and expose the lies that I had been believing and really name the struggles. And in doing so, I mean, God swept in and he completely transformed my life. I'm not talking about mere sobriety. I'm not talking about just abstaining from compulsive behaviors. I'm talking total life transformation. And not just for me, for my husband, for my daughter, for my friends and the people who surrounded me, like for for the communities that I had previously compartmentalized. I was, thanks to God, finally able to just be the same person wherever I went and that the beauty of doing that, did I lose people? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. I did. <laughs> yep. There were people that'll happen that, please. And that's okay. That's okay. Because, you know, I believe the kind of revelation that I received from God by the power of the Holy spirit, just that revelation of the the nature of his goodness when he told me and taught me how loved i really was and how yeah. forgiven i really was it changed me forever and yeah. so i live li- i mean now i'm living out my days and i have had you know experiences working in recovery organizations here in central ohio but even as a professional as a writer as a speaker as a coach i jump in with a primary goal to make sure that everyone i'm working with even if it's in a secular environment i want them to know how loved they are by god And given the opportunity, I want them to know how forgiven they are and that all they need to do to receive the father's grace is just say yes to him. They can figure it out on the way. (laughs) So the journey is just so beautiful.
1: Yeah. You get to do what those people at the purity talk didn't do for you, right? You know, as far as just, you know, treating people with, with that grace and, and with that love and, and like you said, with that forgiveness and, and really helping them kind of step into their identity. You know, like you said, you kind of lived a double life there for a long time. And how exhausting is that, right? I know I've done that in my life. And you can't keep that up. Like you said, you you have to keep track of your lies. You become manipulative and Mm -hmm. it it, you, you end up crashing and you ended up, you know, trying to commit suicide there. You talked mm-hmm. about the, the church's reaction towards your parents mm-hmm. with that. Like, well, you know, just looking down on them, like it was their yeah. fault and everything. What was mm-hmm. your parents' actual reaction to the suicide? When you talk about yeah. wanting love and, and wanting mm-hmm. acceptance, like in that moment in time, did, did you feel like your parents were able to help meet that? What was their reaction to the suicide attempt?
0: Yeah. So I think my parents, I have wonderful parents, and they responded to me the best that I think they knew how with the tools that they had been given, which I'll be honest, were few. <laughs> so the once they got over the initial shock of what had happened, and I'll, I'll never forget sitting on the floor of my bedroom with the door locked, my parents had a suspicion that something was going on at... I think I was in my room smoking with the window open. How embarrassing is that? (laughs) (laughs) And so my dad is thinking, like, are you smoking in your room? And um, he took the door off the hinges to open up the door to find me. Cuts on my arms, blood on the carpet, and the the initial shock of like thinking they were gonna ground me for smoking and then finding out there was something so much more going on there. The shock they just picked me up and they held me, and they took me immediately to the children's hospital. they I mean, they had to deal with the immediate issue at hand first, obviously. And then, as we sat, I, I can remember sitting in the the hospital room, and I, I had some wild things happen um, after that suicide attempt even in the middle of the hospital room there was very much a I hope this is okay to talk about there's very much a, a demonic presence in the room i, I didn't yeah. have language for that at the time i didn't know what that was but i could see something crawling along the ceiling that no one else could see and i was screaming and i was so afraid and they had to sedate me and just watching my mom Fall into my dad's arms, weeping, and my dad just having this look of bewilderment on his face, like my parents did not really grow up spirit filled like they I don't think they even knew what was going on like other than they were just in such shock um but in the days to come, I had to be institutionalized for a little while I had to to be in an inpatient program at the children's hospital, and i met some very kind counselors. Um, None of them were believers. So none of them understood exactly what I was going through. And they didn't understand some of the context other than they thought that maybe I was dealing with some, you know, just some very deep struggles with my mental health, potentially hallucinating and these other things. So those were the questions. But um, mom and dad would come to visit every couple of days and I would debrief with them. And I said, you know, what's interesting with these Counselors is I do think that they wanna make me feel better. I think they wanna help. But when they really talked to me, I even felt shame from the counselors because they said, you know, you're not like a lot of kids in here. A lot of kids in here don't have parents that are supportive like yours. A lot of parents don't have like they're not they don't come from upper middle class families. They don't come from I mean, basically they don't come from privilege like you do. And I remember thinking, Oh gosh, like well, not only was I do I not want to be here at all or do I not know if I want to be alive, but now I should feel ashamed for even feeling that way because I should feel better. Like it was just wild. And so when I spoke to my parents about that, I just said, look, I'll I'll do this, I'll go through it, but I really wanna I really wanna come home. And it was two days later they worked magic to get me a Christian counselor to get me back home into a place of safety with some boundaries put up of course we had to create safety plans and all those other kinds of things but you know my parents even with the condemnation that i know that they felt and the fact that i was kind of i was the family's dirty little secret if if you really want to know and i don't think that that's what they intended. They just didn't know any better what to do. They were so afraid and so ashamed. They carried shame because they, at some level, believed that it was their fault and it wasn't. It was never about them. So with that, looking back, gosh, I have so much compassion and so much love for my parents. Wow. They got way more than they bargained for with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but is this also something that helped your guys' relationship kind of grow too, Britt?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's been amazing to see the transformation in our relationship with me as an adult, being able to look back and to talk about some of these things and to talk about what mom and dad were feeling and what they were thinking and to un- have them, even now, to be able to have their mindset shifted to understand the true nature of People's struggles to understand that things like recovery from trauma are really for everyone, and I've I've been able to unpack for them some of the deep trauma that happened to me as a young child, as a teenager, and they were not only open and willing to receive, but they've even been able to start having conversations about their own struggles, about the own dif- their own difficult things that they went through when they were younger. So, it's just a beautiful full circle effect. Recovery really is for everyone, and you know the ways to in. Which which we come to the ends of ourselves, do not discriminate. And so understanding, it's not about who your parents are or where you come from. It's really about understanding we are all suffering from this human condition and we're all in need of a savior who can deliver us from it all. But it's a lifelong journey and it's really never too late to start, which is really exciting.
1: (laughs) Amen. Amen. I mean, speaking of the savior, I just think of uh, in my mind, that picture of your dad taking those hinges off the doors to to see you and essentially rescue you in that moment, and I mean that that's mm-hmm. that's Jesus, you know, that's the love of Jesus, yes. the love of the Father doing that. And I, I, I want to pick your brain a little bit here, Britt. I work with a lot of teenagers, and uh, some of them self harm, they cut, and yeah. the parents are are so confused; they don't understand why would someone do that? Why would you (laughs) intentionally want to hurt yourself? Because like you said, your intent wasn't necessarily to like kill yourself. So maybe walk us through why cutting, why self-harm?
0: Yeah. So unlike now, when Cutting has become such a commonplace thing. Kids are talking about it at school. Sometimes kids get into it even just for the sake of curiosity because they see a friend do it and they wonder what that's about. Um, That absolutely runs rampant. In the 90s when I was growing up, that wasn't as much of a thing. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't really a culture you could go to anywhere where people were like, hey, this is a release you should try. I honestly believe the idea popped into my head one day because the enemy wanted to put it there. Like, there's no other explanation. I could not have come up with that on my own. It was just bizarre. So, th- what happens and what goes through your mind when you begin to consider something like self harm after that idea pops into your head, you have to understand it is not a logical thought. Like, if you're in pain, to cause yourself more pain does not seem to make any sense. But when the idea pops into your head, the natural release that can happen when you feel pain can distract from the back of your mind, whatever it is you're thinking about that's so painful. And the manifestation of a physical presence and a physical pain can cancel out some of the traumatic things that are going on in your mind. Now that does not make it okay. This is just the thought process of like, how does someone even think to do that? And usually, I, I know in, in my case and in the case of a lot of young people that I, that I walk with through, through instances like this, sometimes you'll ask, why did you do that? The first time or the first instance that they, they come and they share that, well, why do you do that? And most kids don't know they don't know why. It's just something that happens almost subconsciously. But then when it happens and that release comes, it becomes something that's addictive. And you know there, there are certain things that the first time you try them, they're painful and you, you don't like it. But then you're like, but I think I want to do that again. Or I think I want to try it again. And I can think of a million things like that that are positive and good. Like the first time you try to run a mile you might be like this is painful it hurts i can't breathe whatever but if you really want to run a half marathon with a friend you might figure out how to run a mile you might figure out how to transition through the pain and even find that euphoria and that beauty of the natural state of your body when you get to you know accomplish a big goal now flip that to the negative the first time that you engage in self-harm, whether it was an idea that somebody introduced to you or an idea that the devil literally put into your mind, you might feel pain and say, Oh, that's awful. Like, I don't ever want to do that again. What was I thinking? Um, And oftentimes you'll have kids who will come to their parents with that first instance and they'll say, help. I did this thing. I'm really sorry. I don't, I don't know what that was about. I don't ever want to do it again, take everything away. But then their mind will go back to it. Even even when you look and you see the scar on your arm or the cut on your arm, you go instantly back to that place of what was it like in the moment of release? What was it like in that moment where the pain of my current circumstance was more painful than the physical pain I could cause myself to distract my mind and shift it over? So this is the, the natural thought process. It's not always the same for everyone, but this is how it was for me. And it started very small, but then it kind of transitioned into, I would, this sounds so grotesque, but it, it's just the way that it was. I would even yeah. get creative with it. Like, could I make designs? Could I mm-hmm. brand myself? Could I do, and I just, there were, and I'll, I'll get into a very miraculous healing story in a little bit, but, um, you know, I had scars on my arms um, where I would try to write words, in in things like that, and you know, they were so obvious for many years that even into adulthood, they were conversation starters. People would see through them, and it was really really awkward. But um, yeah, the, your your mind begins to normalize the behavior. You start to think of it as something that, like, this is something that I can do. Most people start by doing it in very private places, like the insides of the legs, underneath your arm, where you can't see but eventually things start to become visible and infections can happen. And that's typically when, you know, cutting behavior gets exposed. And honestly, when it gets exposed, it's much more shame filled than if someone's able to come and confess and ask for help about it. So, you know, for parents who are listening to this kind of thing, if your child comes to you and is engaging in this kind of behavior, Oh my goodness gracious. Please don't say things like if you loved Jesus, you wouldn't hurt yourself. Like, like Amen. This is just, I mean, pause. It is absolutely possible to love Jesus like crazy, but still hurt. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that your faith isn't strong enough. That you know, the word even says we can't have faith on our own. Jesus has it for us. <laughs> like no. if not for the power of the Holy Spirit, we couldn't do any of this. Amen. So really. Being slow to respond if your kids come to you with these kinds of struggles, listen more than you talk. Don't try to talk them out of it. Don't try to shame them and don't tr- give them behavior modification consequences. Don't say, if you do this again, you're grounded. Like that, is, it will make it worse. I promise you. They won't stop, but they'll hide it from you better. That's right. So, but then on the flip side, if you discover, that your child is doing this and they don't come to you if you happen to see something or you know there's there's something that happens or if they get an infection or if they get sick. Responding with love, grace, and compassion is Key. It is critical. You will need the help from a licensed therapist to do this. And if you are of the mindset that if you if you've got Jesus, you don't need a therapist. I'm just gonna tell you right now, everybody needs therapy. Everyone who calls themselves Christian is in recovery from something. We all are. If we were once ever sinners in need of a savior, we are now saints and dwelled with the Holy Spirit who are trying to learn how to live that way and figure out what that means. So really responding to people. With grace and compassion, the way that Jesus did. The story in scripture that always sticks out to me, and this isn't an exact case of self harm, but it's a case of just as much shame and uncleanliness in, in the New Testament. Um, there, there's a story, I think it's like three different gospels, of there's a bleeding woman we don't know her name. We we assume we know where she's bleeding from, but we don't know how she came to be this way. It just says like all the rabbis and doctors that tried to help and they couldn't figure it out. So she's just been bleeding out for like 12 years. And she knows if she can just touch the hem of Jesus's prayer, shawl, she can just get to him through the, the crowd and touch his garment that she will be instantly healed. She knows it. And So with this story, Jesus is actually like with this huge crowd of people and he's en route to resurrect a little dead girl. Like, I mean, it's a big deal. Like Jesus is on a mission, but he wasn't in a hurry because when she touches him, Jesus stops. He stops everything in the middle of the crowd. And he's like, whoa, who touched me? That's a little bit of my own interpretation, but he's like, Who touched me? And you can imagine this woman's like freaking out. She's like, Oh my gosh, I did it. I touched him. And is he going to be mad now? Who touched me? I felt power go out of me. Who touched me? And she admits it. And instead of yelling at her, instead of saying, Wow, you know, I'm really kind of busy right now. And I'm really on the way to like, Heal a little dead or raise a little dead girl over here. Can you just like wait till after? Like, schedule an appointment with me next week and we'll get together. He just said, Your faith has healed you, and she was healed. And she, so, just understanding there will come a point in your child's life where they will get that desperate, they will come to you, they will come to someone, or in like in my own case. They will try to take it to another drastic measure that becomes very public very quickly. And when that happens, consider what would be the response of Jesus. Would he respond and say, this is ridiculous. You should know better. Would he respond and say, this is ridiculous. Don't you know how busy I am right now? Of course not. He'd stop and he'd just say, your faith has healed you. It's already yours. Just take it. And he would hold, just hold your children, love them with compassion and goodness. If you don't know how to love people with compassion, when they're struggling, I just want to be straight up. Recovery is for you too. (laughs) If you are struggling to find the compassion of Jesus, try going to a recovery group, try dealing with your own issues and you might actually develop compassion for some other people's. So yeah, but one big thing I want parents to hear and to understand if your child is struggling is so often... It has nothing to do with you. It's not because you did something wrong. It's not because of some trauma that you caused. I'm not going to say never. It could be out there. And if if you play a part in that, you can own your part in that. But you do not need to look at your child who is struggling and assume that it is somehow your fault because it's not. Your child is just on a unique journey, just like you are, giving them space to not see like... A stumble like this, a a failure like this, as something that's fatal in their walk. Any kind of relapse, any kind of um, stumble and fall can be a learning opportunity if we can just approach it, see it for what it is, and not immediately attach shame to it. So, and in the midst of all of that, consider very carefully your church communities. If you're not part of a church community who would be willing to love and support child or an adult who is struggling very ferociously, you might want to consider whether or not that's a community you really want to be a part of, or if that's a community that you are designed to institute change within. Because let me tell you what, I don't care how perfect your life is. I don't care how hashtag blessed you are. There will come a time. When you need a depth of community that goes deeper than the man-made church, you're going to need something that is really, really driven by the Holy Spirit that is focused on healing and that is representative of the heart of God in a community. So really just being ready and willing to love like Jesus did. And if you don't know how, just ask Him to show you a new level of His grace. He will equip you for the task ahead.
1: Right. Man, Britt, I am so in agreement and blown away by th- these last five minutes of how you were able to explain why people cut and, and what the response should be. This is a message people need to hear, that, that specifically parents need to hear. Like you mm-hmm. said, to not meet those situations with condemnation and questions and questioning their faith, but just <laughs> love and grace. And I think the, the big word there is understanding you know, let's just yeah. sit with the kid. Like you said, I, th- I think the verse of the day on my Bible app was the one that says, you know, to be uh quick to listen and slow to speak and slow yeah. to anger. And, um, Still good. yeah. And, and so we just need to, we need to just hold that space for our children in that time and to just be there with them. You mentioned Brit that you had marks and scars and, and, uh, burns or whatever all over Mm -hmm. your arms they were conversation Mm -hmm. starters you also Mm -hmm. mentioned though that there was some miraculous healing so let's hear about that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so this is a story that gosh i didn't start sharing this until pretty recent years um it was back in 20 i think 2018 i went to a conference with um some folks I was in doing ministry work with. I went to a conference called The Send in Orlando, Florida. And I it was a big arena event. And I had never done something like that before. And there were pieces of me that was like, I don't know about this. This is a little extra. But I was like, you know what? It's an experience and where two or more or sixty thousand are gathered. <laughs> it's fine. We're gonna go do it. So I flew down and we got to um we got like reserved pastor space down on the on the football field, it was really neat to just be right there, and there was like Bethel music, like I mean, just you know Stephanie Gretzinger, and you know, I, I mean, it was just wild, just the most wild and fun experience, and I was just having the time of my life, just like letting the Lord love on me. It was all just really beautiful, really good, and really chill, and so. While I was there, there was an evangelist who came out. Um, his name is Todd White, and I didn't know him until I went to the event. But he came out. Began, he has these like, wild dreadlocks in his hair, really different-looking guy. Yeah. And, um, he actually looks a lot like my co-author George used to look when he had uh, when he had locks back in the day. But anyhow, he comes out, comes out of nowhere in the evening and says. Okay, and just coming out and really simplistically, very straightforward says, Okay, God's healing scars of self harm. So if that's you, stand up right now. And I w- I'm here with like ministry partners who haven't seen my scars yet. And, t- and I'm like, Oh no, God, I'm not doing that. And I, I mean, I cannot tell you the level of heat that went up my spine. It was like the Lord was saying to me, You get on your feet right now. I'm about to do something. Would you just get on your feet? And I I was just like, oh, I don't even want to, I don't want to deal with this. But I stood in humility and with a lot of embarrassment and shame at the moment because I didn't really want to have to deal with that. But here we were. I mean, might as well go after it. And I don't remember the words that he prayed. I don't remember
1: exactly
0: what happened other than looking down in what felt like a dreamlike state. And I had a very large keloid scar right here on my arm, underneath where I, I know you're looking at, at me on video right now, but underneath a tattoo that I have on my arm. And I had written a word on my arm. Um, and it was a very obvious scar. And it was one that, that people saw the most. And it was kind of my biggest point of contention with being able to cast off the shame of my past. And I watched that scar lift. Off of my skin and dissolve into the air, like the closest this is it was so wild. it was the most beautiful healing moment. the closest thing that I can imagine that it would be like is like the scales falling off of paul's eyes like that's it was it was like it lifted like it was no longer a part of my body and so. I start screaming and then I'm screaming. And then around me in this this arena of 60,000 people, people are standing and jumping and screaming, just like isolated little people in the middle of a crowd. And you can see I'm not the only one who's experiencing this shared healing. And so I've followed my knees, I'm weeping and all of my ministry partners are freaking out, asking me what's going on. And it wasn't as powerful of a moment with them because it had been covered. They hadn't seen it before, but uh, the next day i I flew out and I got home really late um and i i I flew into Columbus, I think at midnight and I got home at about one o'clock in the morning and I <laughs> ran into my bedroom, I flipped on the lights and I'm like, Mike wake up, <laughs> wake up, look at this!" And he just rubbed his eyes, he turned on another light, looked at my arm, looked at me, looked at my arm, looked at me, and said, "Wow, I don't know what to do with that." <laughs> So, yeah, I I just, I I really do want to say, you know, people who are going through, you know, struggles and people who are walking out their recovery journey, like I very much believe in instantaneous and miraculous healing. And I believe as the body of Christ, we should go after it in boldness. I do want to caution us though, as the church, as the body to remember when people are struggling with things that are long-term and very difficult, sometimes God will heal miraculously and instantaneously. Other times he doesn't. And I don't think it's because he's not good or because he didn't feel like healing today. God's Jehovah Rapha, he always heals. Yeah. But sometimes, actually maybe more than sometimes, maybe most of the time, I believe he values the journey just as much as the initial moment of deliverance. And so to understand in the context of eternity, you will be fully healed. You will be fully restored, not back to who you were before you started to struggle, but back to Eden, back to who you were always meant to be since before the foundations of the earth, that beloved child identity. That is what you're actively being restored to right now. And occasionally we get real live physical manifestations of that goodness and that truth in the natural. and. Wow. (laughs) I'm just so thankful. And so, yes, I do go after bold healing. I don't always see it, but I have seen cancer completely canceled out in Jesus' name. I have seen other scars heal off of other people's bodies. I have seen dramatic things that I cannot explain away by science alone. So, there are pieces of this where you understand believing in a supernatural God, believing in the core tenet of our faith, which is resurrection. If you don't believe in resurrection, if you don't believe, in being able to go from death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, what are we doing here? Yeah. So this is an opportunity for us to remember. Let's go after healing. But don't bully people to the cross, or don't I'm excuse me, don't bully people to down to the altar. Don't try to exercise demons if people relapse. Like be really careful yeah. and conscientious because you just do not ever have full context for someone else's struggle and what they're going through. And remembering, church, that, you know, every bit of legalism we carry in this man-made church that we have created started with somebody's best intentions. We really want to love and honor God. But, you know, the core tenet of the book that George and I wrote is really to ask ourselves as people in recovery and those of us who are loving and leading people in recovery. Hey, church, what's working? Let's keep doing that. What's not working anymore? Let's stop doing that. And then humbly ask the father, what more would you have us do? That's really all it is.
1: Right, man. Britt, going back a little bit, I got goosebumps hearing you tell the story of your healing. That is amazing. And uh, like you said, there's no words other than, but God, but God. Thank you, Jesus. He is so good. (laughs) So good. And we're going to get it in the book, but before we we, we do that, I, I want to kind of tie up your relationship with Jesus here, again, kind of, yes. you know, through high school, you went into the Marines, by the way, thank you for your service. And then you're through college, you, you went through college and, and really excelled there. But it, it sounds like it, you use the words, I bootstrapped myself. I just kind of like, all right, I'm just going to go and take this. At what point did you come to that place of surrender where you're like, you know what? Okay, Jesus... You, you have your way here. I'm not going to go by my bootstraps, but I'm going to follow in your footsteps.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to give you the nutshell, and this could be a whole nother testimony story, but the most important relationship that I have on this earth is with my husband, Mike. And we just celebrated 18 years of marriage last, last month. Uh, Congratulations. August, was, thank you. Completely amazing. He's my favorite person on the planet. Um, that incredibly important relationship was the relationship that God used to really tell me that this way that I had been living, this compartmentalization lifestyle, that He had something better for me. And so, you know, in my wayward ways, in my bootstrapping, in my compartmentalization, in the first 10 years of my marriage with my husband, I had as many double lives as I did when I was a kid. And I cannot even describe to you how many different kinds of ways that I was unfaithful to him. Just no one had ever really taught me the context of covenant marriage. I knew that I loved him, I knew I wanted to be married to him, but I also knew that I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. And I was actively building a separate life outside. Of our marriage. I don't know that I would have ever said out loud that I would have left him, but um, I was not put in my marriage first. And at best, we were roommates with benefits. I'll put it that way. So my marriage was struggling. I knew that it was. And uh, along comes my daughter. And my daughter Bella is an amazing young woman. She's 12 now, interestingly, entering into the same season that. All of my struggles started, and she's so much stronger than me. Wow! But um, when she was little, um, I kind of began to start questioning a little bit more about that that identity that I carried with myself. I had so many people in so many circles who were excited that I had a baby. Like that's a big deal, and whether they're your party friends or your work friends or you know your church friends or whatever, people were suddenly more involved in our lives, asking us bigger questions about the future, asking us about our relationships, things like this. And I began to realize, okay, I guess I can't kind of live like a wild child and do whatever I want when I have a kid. So let's figure this out together. And so we... Uh, we began going to church again, um, and I wanted to get her christened. That was the tradition in my family. We didn't do infant baptisms when I grew up, you just got christened and then you got baptized later. So uh, we went back to my husband's home church, um, to see if we could talk to the pastor about getting her christened. And in our meeting with him, he said, Well, beautiful baby, congratulations, you two. Let me just ask you, you know, why why are you interested in, you know, doing this christening, this baby dedication? And I'm like, isn't that just what you do? (laughs) Like, it was the weirdest question to me. I'm like, "Uh, I don't know because I just do. And he said, well, help me understand why that's important. I can't even get you here on a Sunday morning. Like I've never had that high challenge from a pastoral figure in my life, that direct, that obvious. And I, you know, being my people, pleasing, bootstrapping, I'm going to show you self. I was like, all right, well, um, I will ra- I will take that and I will raise you. I, I will be here every Sunday and I'm going to go for membership and I'm going to be head of your party planning committee in like a week. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I really leaned in and I began to connect with people that I, I didn't know it at the time, but they would end up being my spiritual family, my my spiritual mother, my spiritual brothers and sisters, these people who weren't just part of a church. They were tapped into some other level with God that I had just never heard of. Like it was bizarre. And in them sharing testimony and story with me, in spending time with me, I began to encounter some Holy Spirit elements of the Father that I only understood in theory before. And it began to make me curious. And I thought to myself, huh, what's that about? If that, God, if that's really you, I wanna know more about that. So, I don't do anything halfway. I went all the way in. I I saw a miraculous healing of third-degree burns off of my daughter's hand within six months of this experience. I mean, God just like zapped me with Holy Spirit. Like it was so much like a wave all at once. And my husband wasn't quite there yet. Like, I mean, he's still a believer. He was raised in a very similar family to mine and very much believed, but kind of just knew the right words to say, was not spirit-filled and felt a little like, I don't know if what's happening to Brit is okay or appropriate, or it doesn't feel like what we were raised with. So yeah. he was a little more at a distance until <laughs> my my husband's in the U.S. Army Reserve, and he was at a, a drill weekend. And he came home, and he looked t- really tired. He's always tired after drill, but uh, he looked really, really tired. And I said, Are you okay? Are you sick? And he said, I didn't sleep last night. I said, okay. He he hands me like an eight page letter. And he said, I had some kind of God thing happen to me last night in my room where there was a demonic presence. And I actually, he didn't use that language, but there was a demonic presence in his room. And he got scared and he prayed, legitimately prayed for help and for healing in a way that I don't think he ever had before. And he was instantaneously filled with the Holy Spirit. And God told him, you need to tell your wife everything. Not only had I been keeping secrets and lies from him, he had been keeping secrets and lies from me as well. And so he confessed to multiple affairs, again, multiple ways. And like the, the list of the ways that the two of us were unfaithful, like we, we could go on forever. And I'm reading the letter and I could sense that same heat that I had with, with the healing, you know, from my arm. Um, I could sense that same heat. Every part of me, I think I had rehearsed this in my head, like daydreaming. Like if he, if, if I ever caught him cheating, like I would just leave so fast and it would be dramatic, like a movie scene. And I was so silenced. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I just finished the letter. I couldn't even cry. I just finished it and I put it down and I looked at him and I think I was getting ready to yell and instead, the words that came out were, thank you so much for telling me. Thank you. <laughs> and then we just wept. And I just said, I have a lot to tell you too. And I said, we need counseling. We got to figure this out. I don't, I don't even know where to begin. And, he, and I just said... In, in, at, at the end of his letter, it had said, "You know, you now have in writing like any sort of legal or spiritual documentation to end our marriage, and no, it would be justified. No one would question you." And I said, "Is that what you want?" And he said, "No, it's not." So we began counseling a week later, and we went through Neil T. Anderson's Bondage Breaker together. If you can Great imagine book.
1: that, yeah.
0: yeah, where you li- I literally had to lay there before my husband hear all of the influences I've partnered with in my life. And he was shocked. And so many of the things that he shared with me were just, we're shocked for one another, not offended and not like, how dare you, but like, wow, that explains this. Or, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. You had to walk through that. And in that beautiful process of just being laid completely bare before one another, we actually got to start from ground zero and say, do you know what? Despite all of that, I still choose you. I still choose you. Let's begin again. So, we like to joke that the first 10 years of our marriage was kind of a joke. <laughs> 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 and then walking in those early years of freedom, oh man, it was challenging. It was wild. But just observing the ways in which we didn't even go after Holy Spirit, we didn't even chase after God. He very much came and encountered us. The word encounter by nature isn't something that you schedule like on a Sunday night for a worship experience. An encounter is something that is by definition unexpected. And it had to get to a point where both of us couldn't keep our lives straight anymore. We could not continue on the way we were going and God knew it. So he exposed it. He exposed it with me. He exposed it with Mike. And then finally we said, we don't want to live a life of secrets anymore. So let's get everything out and let's start anew. And that I will tell you right now, Terry, I, I know God hates divorce. He does not hate divorced people, but he does hate divorce. And I know my marriage with my husband, either one of us had right to leave. We could have been done. But I know that would not have been his best. And because of the radical transformation we have been through and our life, seeing our family restored, our marriage restored, our relationship with our daughter restored, even, even wild restoration in the inappropriate relationships we once had, just wild things that God has done. I will tell you right now, there is no relationship that is too far gone if you have two willing parties and believe for the Holy Spirit right in the middle of it. There's no relationship that's too far gone. So yeah, Amen. God came and got me, man.
1: To say the least, my goodness, Brit, that is amazing. Again, only only God could have done that, right? Like you said, so many, and I see this all the time as a therapist, so many couples in that situation would have been just like, all right, we're done. But for you guys to just surrender right and and to just like like you said to extend grace and to work mm-hmm. on it together and to rebuild that mm-hmm. foundation with the with Jesus being the foundation and and being led by the holy spirit and now look where you guys are at you guys have been married for for how long
0: 18 years
1: 18 years and and you got yeah. beautiful bella and yes. uh you guys have this pretty sweet uh log cabin in <laughs> you know in the woods and you know everything that god um has, has blessed you with and, and, and restored, right. You use that word restore like the enemy. Yeah. Oh boy. The enemy came after both of you hard and, and tried to kill, steal and destroy everything, but God restored all that back. And when God restores something, he makes it better than what it ever was before. And you guys are living testimonies of that.
0: It's a brand new life, man. Total transformation. It's awesome.
1: (laughs) transformation and speaking of transformation let's let's get into the book here so again the the uncovery you wrote this with George Britt why why this book how how did this book uh come into uh, onto your heart and why now why why do we yeah. need this book now
0: yeah so I mean walking out my own wild recovery journey I mean I had Plenty of experience in groups like Celebrate Recovery and doing one on one counseling and therapy and things like that. And I had many successes and I had many setbacks as well. And I, just as I have come to find with the church, a lot of times when you have a very specific lockstep process, it sometimes isn't enough for people who need more than 12 steps. It's not enough for people who don't know how to walk up their recovery outside of their counselor's office. I didn't understand at the time that the reason things were working for me was because I had built an, an authentic Christ-centered community. I hadn't gone to seek out some meeting or group where I remained anonymous. I had people who fully saw me, fully knew me, and fully loved me anyway and that is something that is hard to come by to be honest it's very hard to come by sometimes in the church so that being said and i i want you to hear me i am the church like any kind of any kind of opportunities i might share i'm speaking to myself i'm looking in the mirror because i believe that i'm supposed to be part of the solution and part of the transition so having walked out my own recovery journey I was in a pretty great place doing great things for the kingdom, really excited. And then this thing called COVID reared its ugly head and a pandemic hit the world and we were all suddenly on lockdown and in complete isolation. And even with all of the healing that I had had, even after everything that the Lord had brought me through... I began to feel the negative mental health effects of the isolation. And I, you know, I'm a content strategist. I work with clients all over the world and I work from home. So it's not like I was missing my buddies at the office. It was still a very similar life for me, but somehow being stuck at home, the fear of, I don't know, like insert fear, being sick, being judged, being like, whatever, what are we going to do? Are we going to make it? Um, all of those fears began to compound and create levels of stress in my family that were unmanageable. So I started connecting with communities. Gosh, across the nation, I have I have people all over the place. My 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 church is very decentralized, <laughs> and so I was connecting with a wonderful community group out of um, Grove City, Pennsylvania, and we were doing these. Live webinars with anybody who wanted to join, where we were really walking through and interviewing people about mental health topics that the church doesn't often touch. We were doing touch bases in small groups with people to say, You know, how are you really doing? Not trying to replicate an AA or CR meeting over Zoom, but just having authentic fellowship, really connecting, really sharing our struggles and bearing our burdens with one another. And we came to find that so many people. Thought they were walking in a place of victory, but all it took was isolation to put them right back into a place of struggle. And many people were relapsing. Many people were falling hard and falling publicly, losing ministry positions and things like this. And so there was an evening where I was a moderator for a panel of people from all across the country who were stepping in to speak specifically to the topic of trauma and how a lot of things were being brought up for people being stuck in isolation. And this was the time for us to begin to look at recovery differently. And I had the privilege of having George Wood be on that panel. It was the first encounter that I had with him. We met over zoom during the pandemic. It was so weird, but, and I remember, Being blown away by, you know, the radical intentional communities that he's built, these recovery communities in, in uh, Tampa, Florida. It's just so different from where I live in rural Ohio, where I have to, I mean... It's it's a haul to get to my neighbor's house, and they're Amish. Like, if we really live in the woods, and so it's a completely different world where you know these people are basically living in this Jesus recovery commune. And I'm like, that is so cool. I've got to learn more about that. And I think it was the next day that he reached out to me because we have some mutual, you know, friends and colleagues uh, in common. And he said, "This is wild, but." I have a book that I really want to write, but I'm not really a writer. And he said, would you be willing to meet with me to talk about this? And within, I would say the first 20 minutes of our first one-on-one meeting, I immediately knew this was so of God. This was something that had to be done. George's passion and his fire and his Honest to goodness, grace for helping the church begin to see recovery a little bit differently so that we could remove these stigmas related to our struggles, related to addiction, struggles with their mental health, and even thoughts about suicide. We're working with leadership to strip away those stigmas so that those of us who are struggling, which, if we're honest, it's all of us, we can admit it, we can name it, we can get to the bottom of it, and we can heal from it. We can actually heal from that trauma. And so there are many systems and structures within the church that I love that are just not working anymore. They're just not. And I believe this season, this time, this generation, the, the deconstruction movement that we are seeing happen right now, I believe it's by divine design. If there's anything that man has created or tried to You know, create as the idol of man made church, God is going to strip it down. He is going to allow it to crumble. And I believe the church may rise up again and be who she's always been meant to be, which isn't a structure on a hill. We're meant to be out in the community. We're meant to be certainly not of the world, but we are meant to be in it. (laughs) So I believe this is an opportunity for us to receive the grace and love for the father from the father that he really has for us so that we can learn how to give it to people in the overflow in very radical and different kinds of ways and by creating safe spaces for people to process to heal that aren't necessarily attached to a program that are really just attached to living in authentic real life vulnerable community with one another this is where healing comes and so we're like what if the church looked more like one of these safe spaces? What if the church really looked a little more like a hospital for sinners instead of a country club for saints? What if we didn't just open the doors and tell the people to come? What if we were willing to take the gospel back out to them? So this recovery is the gospel. You know, if, if there was ever any sin in our life or if you ever slapped the label sinner identity on you, I want to tell you right now, if you are in Christ, that label is canceled. It's false. You are yeah. no longer a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint dwell by the Holy Spirit. I want the whole world to know that. But it's difficult to find that sometimes, even from a pulpit on Sunday morning. And we're so afraid of enabling people, but I'm less concerned of convincing people of their sin and their struggle, and I'm more concerned with convincing people of their righteousness. Because I believe if people find out how loved and how forgiven they already are, it will transform lives. It will bring people up to a place of not just mere sobriety, but total life transformation. And I believe that we, the church, are uniquely positioned to help people build these promised land lives that they actually want to stay sober for. It's not about being legalistic and lockstep and being a dry drunk for the whole rest of your life. It's about stepping into the transformation, that kingdom transformation that the Father has for you, where he will reestablish the identity that he had for you since not just before you were born, but before the world was even created. This is how important you are. So I just want people to know I'm going to tell them. (laughs) So, this book, The Uncovery, that George and I wrote, is really an invitation not only for people who are struggling to, you know, release some of the shame and the stigma that we carry with our addictions and with our mental health struggles, but it's also an invitation for the church to really repent and come forward and do recovery a little differently.
1: Yeah. And I love how you guys talk about in the book, how, you know, these traditional 12 steps and CRs, not that they're bad by any means. Right. But mm-hmm. the, 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 the overall goal is basically to get them back to the point that they were before they were addicted to something. But the problem as you guys talk about is that, well, their lives weren't really that great before their addiction came into play. So that's yeah. why they became addicted and how with the uncovery, it's about creating a transformed life, right? Creating that promised land life. And I think that that was just so profound to me to hear. And I'm wondering what... What are some practical steps that the church can take that, you know, Mm -hmm. if there's some pastors listening to this or just people in leadership (laughs) or just people that go to church, whoever, everybody, what are some practical Mm -hmm. steps people can take to start entering into that promised land life to, to strip the, the, those stigmas away to, um, to just get that transformation that only Jesus can bring.
0: Yeah. Wow. So there are two different questions that I heard in all of that. One How do individuals begin pursuing this kind of radical life of transformational community? Yes, radical recovery life. And then how do potentially organizations, churches, community groups show up as that authentic community? And the answer really lies right in the middle. Back to those three questions, I think I may have posed them earlier uh, in the interview. It's really about getting together with your people, discerning and praying and leaning into the heart of the Father and asking Him hey, of what we're doing right now, what's working? If what you are doing right now is your Celebrate Recovery program on Thursday nights in the church parlor, if you are seeing record attendance, if you are seeing lives transformed, if this is a place where people know I am meant to be here, please don't stop doing your CR. <laughs> please keep doing it. Like, it's wonderful. And sometimes 12 steps is an amazing foundation for people. But The next question is the next question to ask the father is, what's not working in my own life and in our community groups? What's not working? If you've had an AA program on Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. and it's been there for 20 years and you only have your leader show up, it's not growing, no one's thriving, or you're seeing people relapse like crazy and fail out. It's not to say dump the AA program, but you might definitely do, need to reassess what's not working here. What is it about our community that keeps people not wanting to come back? Are we stepping in with a key framework, like something beautiful, like AA, but then showing up with shame and condemnation when people come to the circle? What What is not working in this situation? And asking Holy Spirit to honestly reveal that to you if you're blind to it. And then if it does reveal something to you that you need to stop doing, be willing to surrender it, even if it was your baby, even if it was your granddaddy's baby, and you're still carrying it on you know, 50 years later, whatever it is, we, the church, really struggle with change, and that's rooted in a place of fear. We're afraid of enabling people. We're afraid of doing things differently because we've just always done it this way. Let me tell you, that is a death sentence. When we're looking at recovery, it, recovery has not changed much in the last hundred years since AA was instituted in the 1930s. It's time for us to look at culture and certainly not water down the gospel for it, but we're definitely going to have to modify our approach, the ways in which we receive people. For instance, not shaming people in a group if they accidentally swear or if they happen to show up on a Sunday morning and wear jeans and didn't know this was a suit and tie kind of church. Like We need to really show up with compassion and ask the Lord to humble us and show us places we need to repent. And then finally, that third and final question when we're looking individually and corporately is to ask God, okay, you know what's working, what's not working. What more would you have us do? what more would that what more could it be what more would it look like maybe he's calling you to you know be bold in bridging conversations between spiritual and scientific communities to overcome fears of therapy in your congregation. Maybe the Lord is saying, do you know what you might want to try, senior pastor? Try being vulnerable once in a while from the pulpit. Share your own story, the things that you're struggling with, because when we share our stories, it empowers others and gives them permission to be brave and share too. It's from that place of vulnerability that we can identify trauma and heal from it. I mean, imagine imagine what it might look like if we were able to, in the context of healthy communities, create safe spaces, not just for people to come and have a meeting, not just to come and worship, but to come and build intentional missional community life together. I believe these are the opportunities that exist within recovery culture. But as individuals, honestly, if you're just saying, I'm struggling and I've been going to AA for two years and I just relapsed and I really don't know what else to do, I want to encourage you, ask yourself those same kinds of questions. What's working? Like When you're sober, when you're full of joy, when you're rebuilding a, good, a life that you want to stay sober for, what are you doing? What's going well? What's what's really working in your life? Who are you surrounding yourself with that's a positive influence? What do you need more of? And then ask yourself, really honestly, what's not working? And for many people that, that George and I counsel and that we walk through, sometimes 12 steps isn't enough. It doesn't mean that they're not good. It doesn't mean that it's not a positive framework, but man, just like any other discipling program, they're just steps. And when we cling to the linear sequential and finality of them, we miss out on opportunities to say, do you know what? I think I'm at step seven, but I'm not sure I actually got everything I needed out of step three. And I'm going to self-select to go back and just stay there as long as I need to. The difficulty in traditional recovery programming for people who are struggling is oftentimes their therapy or their treatment is not based on what they actually need. It's based on an existing system or structure that is typically designed around what their insurance will pay for. And that's really sad, but it's just true. It doesn't take 30 days to get clean from alcohol. That's a made-up number. It's what insurance companies will cover. It does not take you six months to sit in a detox facility. These are just the numbers that we come up with. On average, from a neurological perspective, it takes someone an average of three years of sobriety to have the brain's neuropathways rewire back to a place where they can even begin to reset and rebuild that life. So if we in the context of community can understand that, maybe we won't be so mad when somebody gets through the 12 steps and then relapses one year in. We'll understand that relapse is probably an inevitable and necessary part of just about everybody's journey. Now I don't want to see anybody relapse, please don't misunderstand. But for individuals, if you're struggling and you just can't seem to keep it together, give yourself some grace and ask the Lord what you might learn. When you do fall, when you get back up again, what did you learn? Did you Were you able to stay sober a little longer than last time? Or was it shorter than the last time? What's going on in your life? Not just what happened, what, what did you do wrong and how do you fix it? But say, what other parts of my story, God, am I not even aware of yet? What trauma do you still need to reveal? What more needs healing? We need to give people permission to sit there as long as they need to and to be loved unconditionally with no time constraints or parameters around that. We need some boundaries, healthy boundaries. Obviously, you know, for instance, if you're going to open up your home to someone who's struggling with addiction, you might have some rules. No, you can't use under a roof. And if you do, there are consequences. And, you know, even Georgia's communities have some things like that. Like they're not going to kick you out immediately if you relapse, but the expectation is that you don't use. And when you do, there are consequences for it, but it's unlike a lot of other programs that'll just kick you out and they'll say, what's that? You snuck in a cell phone, even if you didn't use, you're out because you broke a rule. So, it's like these are the kinds of things where we need to ask God, What does grace look like in this situation for myself or for the people that I'm trying to love and lead? Really asking Him, What more do we need to entertain? What more could we do? If you ask these questions in earnest, God is faithful and He will respond and He will show you ways that you can show up for the kingdom in ways that you never would have hoped for or imagined. And when you begin to see that kind of transformation, You'll pause and say, "Okay, God, what else? (laughs) What more would you have us do?" And for people like me, that was you know transitioning a portion of my professional career into being an an advocate and an activist in the recovery space. This is something that's very important to me because it's not only my own journey; it's it's the story of the gospel. It's for everyone. So yeah, just really understanding there are, you know, so many pieces, George and I have been putting out articles and I can share things with you later about, you know, ways in which you might go about transitioning communities to be more welcoming and things like that. But starting with those three questions, what's working, what's not working, and God, what more would you have us do? If you would even do that, I guarantee you, you will
1: see movement. I love it. I love it. And I love the call that you guys have for the church now, because like you said, the insurance companies, these traditional modalities of treatment, that's not going to mm-hmm. change. You know, for them, it's a tried and true method to make money. We as the church need to change. We, the church, need to take uh, initiative to create that, like you said, the safe community where we actually empower people. We walk with people through mm-hmm. through what they're going through and we stick with those people, right? Like when they relapse, we don't condemn them, shame them, but no, we ask questions. We try to understand, okay, well, how can we love you? How can we support you? You know, what are what are the triggers that happen to this? The call that this book has on the on this current generation. I, I told George this as well, but I think it was Sean Bowles, uh, for one of the forewords of the book. He said, you know, this mm-hmm. is the book that I've been waiting for. And I don't know any other way to sum it up than that. Like This is the book that our world needs, that our society needs, that the church needs because it starts with the church. Let's stop waiting for other people to do what what God has commissioned us to do. And this whole book Mm -hmm. you guys give just – tons of of information and and statistics to back all this up to begin with but also the practical steps on how to go about doing this and Mm -hmm. i would highly recommend everyone that's listening to this please 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 go out of your way to get this book because i promise you it's going to change how you look at at recovery and how you look at addiction how you look at suicidal thoughts Britt, how how can people get a hold of this book where is it available
0: Yeah. So it is available right now on Amazon. Uh, That's the easiest place to jump on and get it. Um, Actually, and the audio book is going to be coming out really soon. So we're really excited about that. George and I each recorded pieces and parts of the book, um, ways in which we contributed. So we're so excited to share that with you. Um, It's available there now. You can also find it on shoptheword.com, which is our publisher's unique website. Sometimes you can get it a little bit cheaper there. You just might have to pay for shipping. So if you're not an Amazon Prime person, shoptheword.com might be a great place to go. But if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the concepts in the book and even the movement as it gets started, um, we have a website. George and I created a website. It is theuncoverybook.com. And when you go there, you can not only find links to go and purchase the book easily, but we have um, access for people who order the book. We have um, developed a video curriculum, uh, one video for each chapter where George and I, we actually got together in Tampa and recorded these videos last fall. It's just us taking deep dives into chapters, sharing stories stories, sharing ideas, and encouraging anybody who's reading the book to just go deeper into the subject matter and really search their hearts uh, to see what God's after. Um, You will also find it downloadable as a free resource for right now. We have created a leader guide. So if you are part Um, of a church or some kind of missional community and your leadership wants to explore ways to begin to create more of a safe haven space uh, in your environments, we want to encourage you go download that PDF leader guide so that you can walk through the Uncovery together. It has some deeper questions specifically targeted toward leaders so that we can begin to shift and shift the culture to make it look more like a culture that Jesus would build. So yeah, you'll find those at theuncoverybook.com. And if you want to know anything more about me, if that even interests you at all, you can just find me at briteaton.com, B-R-I-T-E-A-T-O-N.com. And there's information there on uh, the uh, Uncovery, my other books, and the other work that I do.
1: I love it, and I'll link all that below for you guys, so it'll be easy for you to find because I want you guys to find these resources as well I, I I really believe this isn't me just saying this because i'm I'm interviewing you guys because you're on my podcast like there's there's a reason I wanted to interview you and have you on my podcast. I really believe in this message that you guys are sending out right now, and mm-hmm. um Britt. Thank you so much for being willing to come on the show, man. I uh, honestly, like, I feel like I, I could just sit and and listen to you all day because you're just such a fountain of wisdom. Like the 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 words that come out of your mouth and the messages that come out of your mouth. I'm just, I like I said, I could just sit here all day and listen to it because I feel like I'm just learning and and growing simply by listening to you. And uh, man, as as I look at your life, I just think it's such a perfect. Example of God's redemption. Uh, The Mm. the word fulfillment comes to mind. It 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 seems like you live a very Mm. fulfilled life right now, and I'll praise I'll praise to God the Father for that. I am so honored to have connected with you here, Britt. and I know that God is con- gonna continue to use the story of of the uncovery, uh this this collaboration with George and you, you personally and your family. I mean, like you said, we could do a whole podcast on your on your marriage with Mike, but <laughs> man, powerful. That's another word that comes to mind. Powerful. God is going to use you in so many incredible and amazing ways. Um, and I believe that the uncover is just the start of that. This is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. He's going to open up doors and continue to rise up this platform because your heart is for him. And that's evident, mm-hmm. uh, just being able to talk to you and, and to get to know you. And so, Britt, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your realness, your authentic- authenticity. Um, thank you for being you. Thank you for coming on the show.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been just such a joy. It's so good to meet you, and I can't wait to get to know you more.
1: <laughs> Amen. Thanks, Britt. Like I said, Britt is just a fountain of wisdom. I really could sit and listen to her talk all day because she speaks of the gospel with such truth, compassion, and love. She's just so real and genuine, a breath of fresh air in this world. Her passion in talking about Jesus is infectious, and the goodness of God is all over her life. What she and George have done in crafting the Uncovery is crucial for the future of the church, I believe and they make for a powerful tandem in the recovery space. So go to Amazon, shoptheword.com, or theuncoverybook.com to get your copy now. And follow Britt on social media at BrittEaton on Instagram and BrittEaton.com. If you have any questions for Britt, send me an email at twterrypod at gmail.com, shoot me a DM, or use the hashtag AskTWT. Thanks everyone for listening. And if you're loving this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this podcast on social media to help these amazing testimonies get out to even more people. That's it for now, but I'll be back next week with another testimony. In the meantime, live your life in such a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt. Peace.